Welcome to FEPS Talks, a podcast series at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Hello, my name is Laszlo Andor. I'm the Secretary General of FEPS, the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. And I have the pleasure today uh, to uh, meet Professor Joseph Stiglitz in Paris. Uh, I don't think there's a need for a long introduction of Professor Stiglitz since he's the winner of uh, the Nobel Prize in Economics. He was Chief Economic Advisor for President Clinton in the 1990s and also Chief Economist of the World Bank subsequently and the author of many uh, important books uh, on globalization, uh, market failures, uh, uh, US economic history, the roaring 90s, I think it was also a very interesting one. It was also translated to Hungarian, by the way. <laughs> and um, the topic today is um, a book um, which you recently published with FEPS, and we are really honored uh, that you contributed to the European debate on the monetary uh, union and every uh, related uh, question of uh, the functioning of the economic model of um, uh, the EU. The title is Rewriting the Rules of the European Economy, which was um, uh, in a way a continuation of your work on rewriting the rules of the market economy uh, previously in the American uh, context. And um, for us, of course, it's a crucial question how the monetary union can be reformed. And we believe that um, your um, uh, analysis of uh, uh, the functioning of the malfunctioning of the fiscal rules is very central in this uh, discussion. Would you like to explain what should be the direction of reforming the, the, the monetary uh, union and specifically the fiscal framework? The idea of bringing the European countries closer together, uh, which was the spirit of uh, the creation of the euro, uh, was a good idea. Uh, but you have to get the details right. And uh, that's uh, uh, where I think there's been a, a, a failure. Uh, the degree of solidarity that was present in 1992 when the uh, plans of the Eurozone were laid out were not sufficiently great to bring the kind of economic integration necessary to make uh, a common currency work. And the hope was that somehow it would work well enough that it would bring the countries closer together and then as they got closer together the project could be finished. But as it was, this incomplete project actually led to poor economic performance. And rather than leading the countries to get closer together, together it led to divergence. Uh, it undermined uh, European solidarity. So it moved in exactly the wrong uh, direction. The economic reason for the failure is really easy to understand. Uh, when you form a common currency, you take away two of the key instruments of adjustment, the interest rate and the exchange rate, 
And those are absolutely pivotal when different parts of uh, a, a very diverse uh, set of economies that constitutes the Eurozone uh, are hit by different kinds of shocks. Um, and of course, uh, you might say Europe was unlucky in 2008 by being hit by a very large shock coming from across uh, the Atlantic. Um, the problems were exacerbated by uh, the growth and stability pact that had been adopted earlier. Uh, that pact limited the deficits that uh, a country could uh, have. So now the hands were tied in three ways. There was no exchange rate policy, there was no interest rate policy, and precisely when help was needed through fiscal policy to stimulate the economy, they said, you can't do that either because that will lead to deficits that are beyond the strictures of the Growth and Stability Pact. So all the instruments had been taken away, um, and uh, the way uh, austerity, these fiscal constraints, uh, were implemented meant for those countries suffering from the greatest shocks, the effects were devastating. And then finally, when you have a uh, currency union, uh, there is, uh, in the context of a single market where money can flow easily from one country to another, uh, there are severe consequences for the financial system, for the banking system. And uh, what that meant was that the countries that were uh, adversely affected by the crisis, by the shocks, had money leaving from those countries. That meant their banking system was devastated, and that meant that they could not, the banking system could not lend money. So you then were affected by no exchange rate policy, no interest rate policy, no fiscal policy, and a contractionary uh, banking system. And uh, what, what is needed at that point was a banking union, the central ingredient of which is uh, common deposit insurance so people can be confident not to, to leave their money within the country, within the country's banking system. And while there has now been an agreement in principle on a banking union, and within that banking union is common deposit insurance. Yes. Uh, it's a little bit like saying, Augustine, uh, uh, save us from sin, but not now. Uh, we yes. agree on the principle of uh, common deposit insurance, but not now. We say it's like Hamlet without the prince, <laughs> yes. uh, right? The, the most essential is not present um, in, in, in the play. Um, so I understand that we would need a whole set of new tools as compared to the original Maastricht model of uh, the Monetary Union. But um, what would it mean for the fiscal framework? Would you prefer to see no rules at all or reformed rules? 
because some people say that you know, a kind of renationalization of the risk uh, would be uh, the way forward. Uh, member states should take the risk if they want to for their uh, budget policy and um, the imbalances. I, I think that there needs to be uh, a uh, larger scope for risk-sharing within the Eurozone. Um, maybe I'm thinking a little bit uh, as an American, but we have a single currency that works uh, throughout the United States, very diverse stakes. And what are some of the ingredients that make the single currency market of the 50 stakes works? One of them is a banking union. Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, 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 Washington Mutual had a problem, one of the big uh, uh, banks, it wasn't rescued by the state of Washington. If the state of Washington had rescued it, uh, Washington would be in bankruptcy mm-hmm. rather than one of the more prosperous states uh, in the in the country, it, it's uh, it, 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 we have common deposit insurance. Uh, we have a banking union. So that was an important ingredient. Uh, but it's also the case when a particular state has a high unemployment rate. California had a very high unemployment rate after the end of the Cold War because it would have been a big state for defense. We reduced our defense budgets and. Uh, 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 it would have been very greatly impacted. In 2008, uh, some states were impacted much more than others. We had a national unemployment insurance system. We have a state, but we also, on top of the state, we have a national program, especially when unemployment gets very high. So these are all elements of national risk sharing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm which I think is absolutely essential for uh, the workings uh, of, a, of, of, uh, of common currency uh, uh, system. I also think that um, there needs to be modifications, changes uh, in uh, the formulation of the Growth and Stability Pact. Mm. A minimum change that we talk about in the book, Rewriting the Rules of the European Economy, uh, a minimal change is to reinterpret what it means, uh, what the Growth and Stability Pact means. So uh, you need to have flexibility to reflect the state of the business cycle. Mm-hmm. So when the economy is down, you have to have deficits. Uh, if uh, we hadn't had large deficits in 2009 uh, in the United States, we would have had another Great Depression. Um, we violated the strictures of the 3%, but it was uh, for the long run well-being of the country, and it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to have them cyclically adjusted. You also have to recognize that if you are borrowing for investment, the liability side of your balance sheet goes up, but so does the asset. If you borrow at a zero interest rate, and you invest in something that has a high return, uh, the wealth of the country is higher. So there needs to be a redefinition of the growth of the stability pact at a minimum. 
I'm glad you also mentioned uh, unemployment insurance, um, which in the European context is being discussed as a possible reinsurance scheme of the unemployment benefit systems of the member states. But when we arrive to this point, we also have to face the T word, which is very difficult to pronounce in the European context, transfers. Uh, in an EU-USA comparison, I think it is striking that transfers are very obvious in the US because the US has been a political union for a very long time, uh, while on this side of the Atlantic, of course, we're still facing great difficulties. Um, and that somehow this uh, barrier, this is kind of a, a, a psychological barrier, which needs to be overcome um, to, to understand that these types of transfers, when it's about risk sharing, shock absorption, um, are absolutely necessary for the prosperity of the community as a whole. Yeah, I, I, I find some of this discourse a little hard to understand because actually in the framework of the EU, there is a lot of uh, already going on. Uh, uh, the common agricultural policy was a kind of, of transfer program, uh, a very large transfer program. Uh, the... Uh, 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 when the... Uh, new stakes were admitted into the EU, uh, there were funds that were transfer payments that helped them uh, uh, adapt to the EU. So th there's been actually a history of transfer payments. The interesting thing is where there seems to be a problem is mutual insurance. Hmm. To me, mutual insurance seems to me even more reasonable you know it's not just that you're helping the poor you're helping yourself uh one year you may need it and another year somebody else may need it uh, that's the nature of of insurance uh and uh sometimes you hear the refrain uh in some parts of europe we are not a transfer union mm. uh in my mind you're not a union if you're not willing to uh, have some degree of risk sharing, and you certainly can't have a common currency. Uh, you can't have, you know, the whole principle of solidarity is about uh, some kind of risk sharing, at yes. a minimum. Uh, yes, but this brings us back to a concept which you mentioned at the beginning, which is the problem of the divergence and convergence. Because I think it's fair to say that the European Monetary Union is uh, focused on, if not obsessed with nominal convergence, while it leaves much of the responsibility for real convergence at the level of uh, the member states. And then um, uh, this is a question how you know, common tools uh, could help uh, real convergence while this um, relatively rigid system of the fiscal rules uh, prevails. See, my interpretation a little bit was that that uh, one of the arguments for the convergence criteria for why this was so important for the Eurozone uh, goes back to an a early Nobel Prize, uh, mm -hmm. early work by my colleague at Columbia, Bob Mundell. Exactly. And he wrote a very influential paper uh, on, he called it the optimal currency area, but the question was, when could a single currency system, single currency work for a group of countries? And the results of his analysis was that uh, it can work 
if the countries are similar enough. And so it was very natural for Europe to say, well, let's try to make our countries similar enough. What did that mean? That the economies had to converge uh, uh, enough. You know, not perfect convergence, but converge enough. Uh, the problem was that while they understood what needed to be done, when it actually came to the policies that they adopted or didn't adopt, uh, they resulted, uh, what happened was a creation of an economic framework that led to real divergence. And what Bob Mandel talked about was not nominal convergence, it was real convergence that was necessary for a single currency market uh, to work. So unfortunately, uh, the set of rules that were adopted have led to uh, the rich getting richer, the poor poorer, and uh, making it more and more difficult for a single currency system to work, mm -hmm. and creating a fundamental divide within Europe uh, between the creditors and the debtor. Um, how central in the um, the, the process of rewriting the rules is um, the reform of the taxation uh, principle and the approach uh, to tax. Because this, uh, you know, for the fiscal capacity of uh, specific member states is, um, is, is extremely important. While in the EU we also see that even a modest step, which is to establish a common consolidated corporate tax base, CCCTB, is just so uh, difficult. It's difficult to pronounce, but also very <laughs> difficult to achieve uh, politically. So let me first begin with a very abstract idea, which is uh, that when the countries uh, came together in the Eurozone and the EU, uh, they were aware that they had to deal with externalities. Uh, they had to deal with w uh, situations where one country could impose harms on others and they had to develop regulations to stop that. Uh, and that was part of the reasoning behind uh, the fiscal constraints, uh, the limits on debt uh, and deficits, because they thought that if a country had too big of a deficit or debt, it would export inflationary pressures to the rest of Europe. That idea turned out to be totally false. Mm. Uh, that, that was not an important externality, just like inflation was not an important problem in the 21st century. What they forgot was there was a much more important externality that arises through taxation that if you have tax competition, one country could try to steal companies away from others. And uh, that is a much more important externality that was not dealt with. Uh, the good news is that they're now trying to cooperate, mm. and the bad news is that it's been so hard. Right. And we see in some aspects uh, of the behavior of Europe, uh, some countries 
whose behavior has been particularly bad from my perspe uh, perspective. Ireland has become, in a way, and Luxembourg have become the poster child, uh, ch yes. children of, you might say, countries that try to take advantage of their neighbors, of their partners. Mm -hmm. um, when Ireland offered secret deals with Apple and some other co companies, uh, where they could book income that was generated in the rest of Europe, in Ireland, and not pay almost any taxes at all, 0 0.2 or 0.02% of profits. Uh, in a way, they were taking away tax revenues that should have gone to the other countries, giving most of that tax revenues back to Apple and keeping just a minuscule amount for themselves. Right. Uh, to me, that was not, you might say, good behavior. Yes. Uh, and uh, the same thing uh, in a less uh, extreme form, uh, the fact that they have, there's been a race to the bottom in the corporate income tax, 12.5%. You have a low corporate income tax, you can locate your business there and then uh, uh, pay low taxes and then export to the rest of Europe. Mm. And that's why there needs to be an agreement within Europe, but there also needs to be a global agreement on multinational, the taxation of multinational enterprises. Uh, the OECD just recently come up with a proposal of how to deal with it, which uh, I think the consensus is, is outside the business community, is totally inadequate. Some of the multinationals like it, for exactly the reason why I think it's inadequate, it allows for the shifting of profits to mm -hmm. low-tax jurisdiction for tax avoidance. Mm. If we accept that there have to be limits to tax competition, I think we also have to accept that there have to be limits to wage competition. And that's also something we saw at the time of the Eurozone crisis in 2010, 11, 12 that a kind of competitive internal devaluation was unfolding. And that was extremely uh, harsh on uh, not only the incomes and living conditions of the people directly affected uh, by this policy, but also the aggregate demand in the Eurozone as a whole. Uh, w what would be your assessment of this? Uh, should we move for some kind of coordination of wage negotiations? Well, first, uh, the underlying problem goes back to what happens when you can't adjust exchange rates. Yes. So uh, the adjustment of exchange rates would have meant that the cost of production in a country that was adversely affected become lower, and that helps restore the country. With a fixed exchange rate, uh, you can't do that. There are two ways of adjusting real exchange rates. For the successful countries to have a little bit of inflation to adjust up, mm. or to force the countries that have a negative shock, already having difficulties, to lower their wages and make the people who are already suffering from lack of jobs and from uh, make them even worse off by lowering their wages, if people didn't have any debts or any other obligations, you might say it wouldn't make much difference. 
But people do have debts. And the debts are not indexed to prices. Often they're linked to foreign prices, but not to domestic prices. So when the wages go down, workers still owe money denominated in euros. And that means they're worse, the ordinary workers are worse and worse off. So internal devaluation is a recipe for hardship. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas for the countries that are doing relatively well, for them to have increase in their wages makes life even more e- easier. <laughs> For them, so there's a real distribution consequences of internal devaluation versus slight inflationary pressures in the countries that have uh, re- experienced a, a relative good fortune. Yes, but unfortunately, exactly uh, the countries we speak about, Germany or the Netherlands, which accumulated this extraordinarily large current account surpluses, they uh, maybe I simplify, but they simply didn't want to listen to the whole argument. Um, in fact, the EU actually launched a so-called macroeconomic imbalances procedure in order to drop this very narrow focus with the budget deficit and um, the debt ceiling. Uh, nevertheless, in, in practice, it didn't work out. Um, and um, and, and the, all the encouragement to, uh, you know, to, 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 to generate more investment Uh, in countries which do have the fiscal space uh, for this, uh, was not really uh, listened to. Uh, So the question is, what will generate more investment, Uh, especially in the countries which can borrow at no price, because uh, at this time uh, it's very cheap. So to me, it it is absurd that some of the countries that need more investment in infrastructure and technology and, and, and even in education are not taking advantage of this almost unique opportunity of borrowing at zero negative interest, real interest rates uh, that would make their economy stronger and help their neighbors by increasing uh, economic strength, aggregate demand in Europe uh, as a whole. Uh, and one of the points that we raise very strongly in rewriting the rules of the European economy is there has to be that kind of coordination, mm-hmm. there has to be a kind of understanding that that is, you might say, the moral and economic obligation mm-hmm. of these countries. I'm a little bit hopeful, but mm-hmm. only a little bit hopeful, uh, that uh, recently there's been a little bit of movement in this direction. Um, Germany finally raised a minimum, created a minimum wage, and that is stimulating the, the, the German economy. As German as the German economy is facing a significant downturn with the weaknesses in China and export markets, the slowdown in the global economy, there's finally a, a discussion of of maybe uh, putting aside temporarily the the debt break and mm-hmm. and. Now is the time for Germany to take advantage of these circumstances to have mm-hmm. more uh, expansionary uh, fiscal policy. Um, I, th- you know, one can only hope that Germany will and Netherlands realize that if they want the 
Eurozone to work, if they want the EU to work, mm. they have to exactly. they have to adapt the policies uh, that internal devaluation is a recipe for creating a strong anti-euro, anti-EU sentiment, mm -hmm. which you are already seeing in some mm -hmm. parts of Europe. Yes. Um, on this point, I have to note that it took a social democratic minister of labor in Germany to introduce the minimum wage, and it took a social democratic finance minister to start reconsidering the fiscal framework they have been pursuing in uh, the previous uh, years. At the same time, let me also mention that there has been in the past five years um, an experiment with kind of very limited flexibility regarding the fiscal rules, but expecting a greater impact from the so-called public investment banks within countries, but also the European investment bank to boost the capacity and allow for a greater role to play in terms of leveraging public, but also a lot of private investment. Do you see this as a kind of hopeful exercise? Yes, I do. I, I, th I think public uh, investment banks are a uh, really, really important uh, tool. Uh, Europe has a very successful European investment bank. Um, there are now in the United States, we've been learning some of the lessons of Europe, And uh, New York State uh, has uh, started a what appears to be a very successful green bank mm -hmm. uh, within the state. And so w w the lesson that has come out of that is that actually these uh, new investment banks can mm -hmm. be created at many different uh, levels of, of government. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Even a uh, small state in the United States, North Dakota, has now uh, an investment bank. Mm -hmm. So uh, I hope uh, that this is a kind of tool that, that countries will seize mm -hmm. upon. Uh, it is a way, in a way uh, that they can help uh, stimulate the economy within the confines of the strictures of the Growth and Stability Pact. But as I said before, I think that pact has to be reformulated. Right, so there is no substitute for that. It, there are it, many other useful instruments, but there is no substitute for For, for, for dealing with a, a, a flawed interpretation mm -hmm. and design of a growth and stability pact. Would you also um, agree that these public investment banks are also the central pillars of a climate agenda? Uh, to, 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 to generate the necessary investment uh, to tackle climate change? Very much. Uh, the, uh, and that's, that's where the, the, they've been focusing in the United States. There are green banks mm -hmm. uh, aware that uh, there needs to be uh, substantial sums mm -hmm. of money going into the green transition. One way I... Uh, Uh, try to articulate this is that uh, we have actually in our society uh, uh, lots of long-term funds, pension funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds. Uh, these are long-term. We also have a lot of long-term investment needs uh, uh, for the green transition, for infrastructure, uh, for technology. But standing between these long-term investors, 
savers and the long-term investment needs stand a lot of short-term financial institutions. It's a mismatch. And the new public investment banks can play a, a big role in bridging that gap and enabling our societies to have a longer-term perspective than the financial, private financial banks that tend to look quarter to quarter. Um, I think this is a very important conclusion. However, I think we shouldn't um, end our conversation today without briefly reflecting on um, the new winners of the Nobel Prize. Uh, because it's three very distinguished uh, economists who now received uh, the, the Nobel Prize, particularly uh, for uh, studying poverty. What is your view on uh, oh, I on think this uh, it is well deserved that there be attention on poverty. Uh, uh, you know, when you say, uh, how well is the global economy doing? Uh, it's not just GDP that matters, it's the living standards of ordinary people. And if we live in a global economy of seven billion people, and there are several billion of that seven billion people who are in poverty, it says that our global economic system is not working. Uh, at least it's not serving large parts of humanity. And uh, we uh, have the re resources. Uh, we, it's really important to have the knowledge that uh, how to deal, how to fight this poverty. And uh, this Nobel Prize symbolizes uh, the efforts of economists to understand better how we fight poverty. Uh, what does that mean in concrete terms? Um, my kind of uh, understanding is that Professors Banerjee, Duflo and Kremer uh, kind of contributed to a paradigm change uh, from previous macro approaches to poverty uh, reduction towards um, micro-level interventions. Um, does that uh, provide a kind of new orientation also for the institutions um, which uh, consider poverty reduction as their mandate? Well, I, I feel very strongly that you have to balance micro and macro interventions. That uh, if you don't succeed in having the overall economy grow strongly, mm. you're not gonna be able to have the resources to really fight poverty. And uh, uh, that requires uh, industrial policies, macro policies, monetary policies, uh, a broad set of uh, you know we call it industrial policies, uh, uh, investment banks, a whole set of macroeconomic institutions that promote economic growth. Uh, the most successful countries in fighting poverty were those in East Asia. And key to their success were, for the most part, macroeconomic policies of the kind that I've just described, structural mm. policies, and they worked. Mm. Uh, but they were also accompanied 
by certain micro-policies. Uh, what do we mean by that? Uh, if you have macro-policies, uh, GDP could grow, but the benefits may not go to ordinary individuals. So you have to have education policies, uh, you have to have policies to make sure that people have adequate housing, that people uh, have uh, adequate education, uh, that the benefits of growth are well distributed. Um, uh, you, you have to uh, think, uh, uh, how do you deliver services, uh, education services, down to the grassroots, uh, down to the village? So you need to have very uh, uh, carefully designed microeconomic policies as well. And uh, I think you need a balance. Mm. And... Um, the uh, Nobel Prize symbolizes both the emphasis on the micro, which the World Bank had been focusing on, quite honestly, for decades, not always with the right policies, yeah. but that issue was really where they had uh, uh, focused to a very large extent. Uh, but it's also a particular set of tools uh, these random con uh, control uh, uh, RTCs. But again, that's only one of several instruments for finding out about the world. Uh, there are many instruments, uh, natural experiments, uh, 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 policy experiments, uh, there are many ways that we m learn, make inferences about what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And um, again, I think it's really important to maintain balance. So we have to maintain balance between macro and micro. We have to maintain balance within the various mechanisms, instruments, by which we learn about what are the best policies uh, to uh, advance uh, the interest. Let me just give you one example that I think highlights uh, the point. Um, the, uh, one of the most successful tools for addressing poverty uh, has been microcredit, mm -hmm. uh, started by uh, the Grameen Bank. Um, there were a number of uh, RTC experiments with those, uh, design of one aspect or another of the payments mechanisms, but none of them got at the heart of what made for success or failure. And because they didn't get it, they really didn't prevent, help us address the mm. largest failure the microcredit, which was in India. India. What was at the heart of the success? It was institutional arrangements, making sure that they were not for profit. So you could have a for-profit and experiment with one payment mechanism or another, but what really made it work, and the Grameen recognized this uh, when they you know, wrote about it, they said, one of the reasons we're successful is because we create a bond 
with our borrowers. Uh, we, they know we're not trying to take advantage of them in the way that a for-profit institution might. We are concerned not just with money, but we are concerned with uplifting their lives. We are concerned making sure that we have women empowerment, uh, that girls get education, that they understand about health, that, we, that uh, they have their legal rights. That's much broader than just money. Yes. And that was why it was so successful in Bangladesh and why it went into bankruptcy in India. So those are the kinds of things very hard to do uh, a random control on. And I, I just say that because it is really important to fight poverty, but it's really important that we use all the instruments for learning about how to do it and all the instruments for fighting poverty that, and promoting economic growth that we can. I think what you described uh, we call in Europe a social economy. <laughs> Uh, Professor Joseph Stiglitz, uh, thank you very much for this conversation and also I thank you for the long-standing commitment to uh, the cooperation with FEPS. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned. <laughs>